Please stand for the reading of God's word. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, "It is I; do not be afraid." Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is God's word. Well, if you have your Bibles open to John chapter six, I hope you'll keep them open as we pray together this morning. God, as we open your word today, we ask that you would guide us, that you would open our eyes to see and our minds to understand, that you would lead us in receiving wisdom from your word. God, we, we are grateful for the book of John, for the chance that we have to, to walk through it together as a church family, and we pray uh, that as we continue to do so, Lord, that you would be at work in us and that your spirit would be raising us to maturity of faith and an understanding and greater dependence on you and your gospel. God, we're grateful this morning uh, for you and the way that you work in us through your scripture, and we ask that you would do so in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, every one of us knows what it feels like to be in an uphill battle, some situation in which we feel outmatched and overwhelmed. But we've been trained, I think, by our culture, how to face situations like that. In 1906, a children's book was published that would go on to become incredibly popular and be the basis for uh, songs and cartoons and even a movie made by Walt Disney. It's called The Little Engine That Could, and it tells the story of a small train engine that volunteers to tow a train over a mountain. Everyone else had said no. All the bigger and stronger trains, all the bigger, stronger engines had said no. But the little engine that could latches onto the train and starts pulling while he repeats the phrase, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And in the end, he makes it over the mountain, and as he rolls down the other side, exhausted, he says, I thought I could, I thought I could, I thought I could. The story has been used by teachers and parents all over the country and maybe even the world to teach kids about the value of optimism and hard work. The little engine that could teaches us how no mountain is too high, no load too heavy to carry, as long as you have a good attitude and self-confidence. That's how we've been trained by our culture to face difficult circumstances that we encounter in our lives. If you buckle down and work hard, you can achieve your dreams, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, all that sort of stuff. But what happens when I think I can collides with something it simply cannot overcome. One of my favorite routes for running near my house goes over a big hill that's close by, and it's a really big hill. It's really important to me that you understand, as I move through the rest of the story, that this is a really, really, really big hill. And even though I've been over this hill a bunch of times, I still have never made it to the top without stopping to catch my breath. Even on days when I feel great, 
when I've actually stretched before my run, when I've eaten well and my first couple of miles have felt really, really good, I get to that hill thinking that today I'm going to conquer this hill. I'm going to get to the top without stopping. I start my climb, and in my head I'm saying, you got this. I think I can. I think I can. But every single time, at some point or another, my legs literally feel like they are on fire, and I have to stop. It does not matter how optimistic I was when I started. By the time I'm about halfway up, my positive thinking has been replaced by questions about whether or not I'm about to collapse in someone's yard and whether or not uh, they will even notice that I'm there. What happens when we face situations in life that drain us to the point that we are empty and have nothing left to give? When the obstacle in front of us seems too big to conquer. When someone suddenly loses a job and our family faces financial crisis or discovers that a loved one who is struggling with substance abuse and has relapsed even though they've been trying for years to stop, or when someone we love receives a terminal prognosis. What do we do when I think I can is not enough? It's in those moments I think we have a chance to learn something important about Jesus Christ and what it means to be delivered from something we could have never overcome on our own anyway. The the passage that we're looking at this morning from John chapter 6 is part of a larger section of John's gospel. The disciples have just seen Jesus do the impossible, and as a massive crowd of thousands have gathered to hear him speak, Jesus miraculously fed all of them with only the supplies of a young boy's lunch. It was a teaching moment for Jesus. He had asked his disciples, how are we going to feed all these people who have come? And they think about it for a minute, and they reply, there's no way. It's impossible. It would cost a fortune to buy enough food for each of them to even get one bite. And even though the disciples have already seen Jesus do miraculous things, they are stuck on the practical hurdles that they would have to overcome to solve this problem. It's a logical way of thinking. Analyze the situation, uh, analyze the problem, and search for workable solutions. And that, that way of thinking absolutely makes sense. Unless Jesus is standing right next to you asking you what you should do. As the day draws to a close, they are as confused as ever. Mark, in his gospel, notes specifically in his record of these events that they did not understand about the loaves. They simply didn't get it. Though they had spent more time with Jesus than anybody else, they still are not seeing him clearly or understanding him fully. And as the day ends, they get into a boat to sail across the Sea of Galilee. Matthew and Mark, who both recorded this scene, also note that Jesus instructed them to get into the boat. It's a detail that may go overlooked. He's sending them across the Sea of Galilee alone. He's not going with them. Instead, he went up on a mountain to pray. He withdrew, John tells us, after perceiving that the crowd wanted to take him by force and make him king. Here's a guy in Jesus Christ who had managed to feed all of them. What a useful king he would make, they think to themselves. They wanted more bread from him, but Jesus has more to offer them than that. And so he withdraws from the crowd and from his disciples. And he sends them out in a boat, headed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, sailing from the east side to the west side of this sea that's really more of a large lake. And John notes that it was dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. All over the book of John, 
Darkness and nighttime are used to symbolize the same thing. In chapter 3, John notes that it was nighttime when Nicodemus arrives in his confused curiosity to question Jesus. In chapter 13, John notes that it was nighttime when Judas left to to betray Jesus to the Jewish authorities. In chapter 20, before the sun had risen, Mary sees that the tomb in which Jesus has been buried has now been unsealed, something that she does not comprehend yet. Darkness and nighttime are used throughout this gospel to symbolize confusion about Jesus and about his mission and an inability to recognize him as divine and holy and as Savior. John is signaling to us what Mark made explicit in his gospels. The disciples don't get it. They're still confused. They are in the dark. So Jesus instructs them to get into the boat and to paddle into what will be one of the longest nights of their lives. Before long, a storm has arisen on the sea, and the disciples are fighting to survive. It's exactly where Jesus wanted them. The Sea of Galilee was well known for its treacherous storms, which could arise with little notice. Since it sits a few hundred feet actually below sea level, the Sea of Galilee is evidently susceptible to violent storms with strong winds and high waves that come with little notice. Those who lived along the shore or made their living fishing in its waters knew all too well about the dangers that were involved, and since several of Jesus' disciples were fishermen by trade from this this region, we can imagine the scene, I think, pretty well. As As the winds picked up on the sea, the disciples who had spent years sailing on these waters probably understood what was about to happen. Sailing at night, as we know that they were, they were probably navigating by the stars, but as clouds swiftly rolled in, obscuring their ability to tell where the stars were, they couldn't even tell anymore what direction they were headed. John notes that a strong wind was blowing, which caused the sea to become rough. And even though we might read right past that language and think, okay, sure, it was windy out, uh, that's language, I think, that should cause us to pause. Before moving to New England, uh, many of you know that Jessica and I lived in Amarillo, Texas. And if you've been to Amarillo before, you know that it has a few distinguishing features. First of all, it is very flat. Uh, There is no feature to the horizon at all. If you stand on a six-foot ladder, you can see like 250 miles. It is very flat. And because it's so flat, there is nothing to break up the wind. There's nothing to interrupt the wind. And that's the second feature that defines Amarillo, Texas. It's windy pretty much every day. The wind is just always blowing. Occasionally, you get lucky, and you have a day that's just breezy. (laughs) But otherwise, it is just always windy. So when someone from Amarillo says, wow, it is really windy today, you understand that to mean that if you walk outside with an umbrella, you might get swept away into Oklahoma. So John's note here that this is a strong wind should make us pause because the Sea of Galilee was known for its storms. This is a perilous situation. The lives of these disciples are in danger. And their fear is heightened by the Jewish cultural understanding of the sea, which they understood to represent chaos and disorder and evil. It is the home to giant, terrifying creatures. It is uncontrollable and relentless and unpredictable and Jewish people had a healthy fear of it on a good day. For that reason, many Old Testament passages illustrate God's strength. They explain how strong God is by pointing to the fact that he has dominion over the sea. 
Passages like Psalm 65, 7, which bring comfort to God's people by reminding them that the God of our salvation is the one who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves and the tumult of the peoples. Their fight for survival in this sea, the disciples' fight for survival in this sea, is emblematic of an even greater struggle against all the things that the sea represents in Jewish thinking. For hours, they've been struggling to make it to safety. Mark notes that it was during the fourth fourth watch of the night, which makes it between 3 and 6 a.m. They've been rowing for hours and hours and hours, fighting the wind and the waves, and they've only made it three or four miles, according to verse 19 of our passage in John 6. And on top of it all, they are alone. Jesus had not yet come to them, John says. It's completely dark. There are no lanterns that are able to stay lit on this little boat that's getting tossed around like a cork on this stormy sea. Clouds are blocking any light from the moon or the stars. Waves are crashing into the side of their little boat, threatening to capsize it or fill it with water. And the disciples, exhausted from a relentless night with their arms burning, know that they are out in the middle of the sea. They still have three or four miles left to go. It was all chaos and darkness and exhaustion and fear that this would be the end of their lives. But then they see something that they can hardly believe. Jesus is coming to them, walking on the surface of the water. And among all the other things that are happening, John notes specifically at this point that they were frightened. Matthew and Mark comment on this, on, on seeing Jesus, that they thought they were seeing a ghost. But John is less concerned with why they are afraid than with how it is their fear will be resolved. Knowing their fear, Jesus calls out to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And immediately their fear dissolves and they bring him aboard and somehow, immediately, they arrive at their destination, which must have seemed pretty weird to them. It's a curious scene and it's one that is never discussed or referred to again in this gospel. Most of the time, the way that John has constructed this book is that after Jesus does a miracle, there is a long explanation of what the miracle means or what it is pointing to. Chapter 6, which we're studying right now, is constructed in this way. Jesus fed the 5,000, and in the passage that we're going to look at next week, we'll have a long explanation of the meaning and significance of that miracle. But this brief scene in between where Jesus walks on water is not explained or brought up ever again in this book. And for that reason, I think that this short, bizarre scene is part of Jesus' explanation for feeding the 5,000. Just like the day before, the disciples are in a situation with no obvious solution. When Jesus asks them, how should we feed this crowd? They are stumped, looking at the circumstances and failing to find a solution. Now they are out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee with a storm whipping all around them and kicking up waves into the side of their boat, and they are paddling like crazy to make it to safety, but making no real progress. There is no easy way out and nothing they can do to save themselves. They can't strategize their way out of it. Optimism and hard work are not going to save them. But this time, rather than asking them what they think they should do to solve the problem, he is going to show them how they will make it through the night. 
There are a few things in this short passage, I think, that we are supposed to notice. First, that it is Jesus' arrival that ultimately calms their fear, not at first, but ultimately, it is his coming that shows them that they will be okay. Second, Jesus gets into the boat with them. And third, that Jesus himself will be their rescue. And in the time that we have left this morning, let's look at those observations a little bit more closely. First, it is Jesus' arrival that ultimately calms their fear. This seems to be a point that John wants to emphasize in his account of this scene. While Matthew and Mark each focus on the nature of their fear or on faith and trust in Christ that enabled Peter to take his own steps on the water, on the surface of the water, John does not draw attention to either of those things. Instead, everything in this passage builds to the only line of dialogue that John records, Jesus' announcement to his disciples in verse 20, when he says, "'It is I, do not be afraid.'" Jesus' command to not fear is the only instruction in this passage. It's not an uncommon phrase in Scripture. In fact, this specific instruction occurs over a hundred times across the whole Bible. Often, it is God's word of comfort to his people in one of two situations. First, because some circumstance has caused them to be afraid. That was the case in Deuteronomy 31, when the Israelites were preparing to enter Canaan to possess it, though they would need to conquer the fortified cities and the well-equipped armies of the land along the way, and they were afraid. And Moses says to them in Deuteronomy 31, be strong and courageous, do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Or God's word to his people in Isaiah 35, 4. When he says, be strong and fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God, and he will come and save you. The command to not be afraid is rooted in God's presence and his love for his people. Secondly, though, God says this, he gives this instruction to not be afraid because his presence is the thing that has caused people to fear. In Exodus 20, when Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, the whole mountain is wrapped in a dark cloud and thunder and lightning are continually booming and shaking the ground and the people witnessing this from afar are trembling in fear. And they plead with Moses after they hear the Ten Commandments. They say, please, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They are afraid because they have glimpsed God's presence from a distance, and they fear that getting any closer will utterly destroy them. Yet Moses replies to them, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. They need not fear, though God's presence would certainly cause anyone to tremble, because his power and his glory will be for their good. Out on the Sea of Galilee, both of these scenarios are in view. Jesus arrives, and John notes only that they were afraid to see him walking on the water. Here is one whose power and authority is even greater than what they had feared most. And out of the utter darkness and chaos of that night, Jesus is walking toward them on top of the waves. He is not threatened by the waves. He is not tossed about by the wind. He stands over them. The power that holds them together is instructing them to support each of his steps, and they are right to have a fearful, 
awe of him. Jesus himself will explain in a later passage a proper perspective when he tells them, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. The chaos and disorder of this stormy sea are being quietly but powerfully ordered to do the will of Jesus, and they obey. And the disciples are afraid. What they've failed to understand from the day before, they are beginning to grasp now. Power and authority over the universe is here among them. And like the Israelites who stood at the foot of Mount Sinai, suddenly they fear him more than the waves that threatened to take their lives. But Jesus speaks a word of comfort to them. It is I, he says, do not be afraid. They are right to tremble before the power and glory of Jesus, but that power and glory will ultimately be for their good. It wasn't their fighting against the waves that brought them comfort. It wasn't their effort or their strength. It was Jesus' words that comforted them. The one who rules over the sea and says, do not fear. Now, rather than fearing, they feel gladness. Secondly, Jesus gets in the boat with them. Uh, This may seem like an insignificant detail, but it is one, I think, worth considering. John records only a very few number of details in this scene. It's a very short section of this book, so every single detail that he does record is jammed with significance. And I think that the significance of this detail, that Jesus gets in the boat with them, is in the observation that there is a massive difference between passive support and active support. Uh, It is good, I'm sure you would agree, it is good to feel goodwill toward the homeless in our communities and in our city. It is even better to write checks to organizations like North Star, an agency here in Boston fighting to advocate for and serve the homeless in our city. That is obviously not a bad thing to do. But there's a big difference between that and actually going to serve the clients of North Star. Sitting down and praying with them, hearing about the struggles that they're dealing with, coming alongside them in life and developing friendships with them. Jesus does not stay on the shore. Mark notes that when Jesus saw them making headway painfully and struggling against the wind, that it was at this moment he came to them. He knew that the disciples were fighting for their lives, and in that moment he comes to them. When Jesus sent them out the day before, he knew that a storm was coming. He obviously knew that a storm was coming. He was the one preparing it. And yet he sent them, knowing that it would be a very, very long night for them. But he also knew that he would come to them. That when they were at their very wit's end, he would come to them. So that they would grasp something that they had not understood yet. I think that God often does that. Uh, because I think we are pretty slow on the uptake. Moments when we have to face our limitations and our weaknesses are the moments that God reveals to us that his power is made perfect in our weakness. And Jesus has come to conquer something that we could not defeat, the sin that Scripture says had enslaved us. It bound us in chains that we could not break, but in Christ they are shattered. That victory did not and does not come as a result of our hard work. But 
God didn't just give us instructions from the sidelines expecting us to summon the strength to overcome our chains. He didn't just cheer us on from the shore. No, he came to us. He took on flesh. He joined humanity. He got in the boat with us. He did not leave us to struggle against a force we could not defeat. He came to fight for us. And he did so by living a humble, perfect life and dying a sacrificial, substitutionary death. He came to be one of us so that he could die as one of us. Jesus gets in the boat with us. It's a lesson that the disciples desperately needed to understand. Like the crowds from the day before, they were misunderstanding Jesus. They had received blessings from his hands and they thought, this is awesome. Jesus is legit. He can conjure food out of thin air. When the point that Jesus will make very clear in the passage we'll look at next week is that Jesus himself is the bread that they need. He didn't come to give a gift, something like bread or healing from an affliction. He came to be a gift. He came to get in the boat with us and to be the salvation that we needed. And I think that the, the reason... Uh, that we have the strange conclusion to this passage here in John 6 is exactly this. As soon as Jesus gets into the boat, it is at its destination. John says, then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the, the land to which they were going. The end. No commentary, no explanation, no discussion. Just an abrupt ending to a harrowing night on a stormy sea. And in verse 22, the beginning of the very next paragraph, if you're looking, the story moves right along. And John says, on the next day, dot, 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 no explanation, <laughs> just an abrupt ending. The immediacy of their arrival has been to some a signal that this is not really a miracle at all. They read that and assume that the boat was really right by the shore all along and that Jesus was really just walking along in some shallow water. But that does not explain the sheer terror that the disciples felt at seeing Jesus walking on the waves. It's clear that John intends us to realize that Jesus is miraculously walking on the surface of the water out in the middle of the sea, and that the second miracle of this passage is the immediate arrival of the boat at the place they had been trying to get to all along. Somehow, in all the chaos of the night that they just had, the boat has made landfall at the exact place they were trying to go, and it happened as soon as Jesus came aboard. That leads us to our third observation in this passage, that Jesus himself will be their rescue. It's not their hard work that will save them. It's not their determination or their optimism or saying to themselves, I think I can, I think I can. It will not be their perseverance or their strength. It will be Jesus who saves them and brings them where they needed to go. This section of the book of John is, is interesting uh, because it contains several references to another part of the Bible, specifically to the book of Exodus and to Moses. In the passage that we looked at last week, after Jesus had provided food to the thousands who were gathered there, the people get excited and they say to themselves in verse 14, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And as Bruce explained to us last week, that was a reference to Deuteronomy 18, in which God told Moses that he would send another prophet like him into the world. In the passage that we're looking at next week, there will be more subtle references to Moses. For Jewish people, though, reading this in the first century, these references would not have been subtle. 
they would have stood out like flashing lights, calling to mind the most formative and cherished part of these people's history when God brought them out of slavery in Egypt. After four centuries of bondage, God came to his people to bring them out. And in Exodus 14, they walk out of Egypt. And God, in that moment, tells them to camp in a very specific place. He says, tell the people of Israel to turn back and to encamp right next to the Red Sea. It's literally the least strategic place that they could possibly have stopped for the night. They are exposed with their backs to the water so that they are pinned in should anyone come and attack them. And that night, the Egyptians arrive to recapture their slaves. The Israelites are terrified, obviously. They have nowhere to run. They feared greatly, according to Exodus 14, 10. And they say to Moses, is it because there were no graves for us in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? They see no way out. There's no solution to this problem. But that is exactly where God wanted them, because in that moment, they had no other hope, no other place to put their trust for their salvation. They were defenseless, trapped, and surrounded by a well-equipped army. And so God says to them in chapter 14, verse 13, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. And at God's instruction, Moses lifts his staff, and the waters of the sea begin to part. The people are able to flee to safety, following Moses as he walks across a sea. Some of the most important lessons we learn in life come when we have no choice but to listen to what God is saying. For the Israelites, it was the realization that their only hope was in the deliverance that God could provide them. For the disciples, it was in realizing that Jesus had authority over the sea that was threatening to take their lives. And for us, it is in the crushing and terrifying realization that we are fighting against an enemy that we are too small to defeat, followed by the soaring and joyful realization that Jesus has come to do what we could not. Jesus is the prophet like Moses who came to bring all his people, all his people, out of slavery. We sometimes get things confused, I think, when we think of Jesus as someone who, who, who has come to meet our physical needs. He feeds people, he heals people, he helps people throughout his ministry. And so we sometimes think of him as a helper who is useful to us. But it is hilariously insufficient to see Jesus merely as useful. He didn't come to feed people. He came to solve the problem of hunger. He didn't come to heal sickness. He came to solve the problem of sickness. He did not come to cheer us on in our struggle against sin. He came to save us from our sin. There are moments in our lives that will challenge our confidence in our small, insufficient strength. When I think I can will prove to be too small. And in those moments, we have a chance to clearly see the salvation that God has worked for us in Jesus Christ. When we have the opportunity to set our hope on something stronger than our strength or the force of our will. Psalm 107 reminds us of the promise of God's salvation, of his strength in the storm, and of our right response. It reminds us that even as the storms of life rage around us, we have a Savior, and because that is true, we can have lasting joy. Many of the words of Psalm 107 
also are, are, they come up in this passage from John 6, so many that it seems highly likely that John had it in mind as he recorded this scene. As he looked back on his time following Jesus and he thought about this moment and this night, this harrowing, terrifying night that he had in which he got to see Jesus walk on the water, Psalm 107 probably helped him understand that wild night that he had on the Sea of Galilee with his friends. And as we close this morning, I'd like to read part of it to you because it summarizes so much of what we've been talking about this morning and it helps us to know where to go from here. Beginning in verse 23, it reads, Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord and his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. This morning, let us remember that our God reigns over the difficulties that we face in life, even the struggles that threaten to take everything from us. That he even uses them to draw us nearer to him, to reveal his power and glory to us, to give us joy in him and to give us strength in the storm, a strength that is rooted in our hope in his salvation. And in the middle of the storm, let us praise God because we know that he has proven and accomplished his love for us in his son. Let's pray together this morning. Um, God, we are thankful to be able to open your word together this morning as we join together for this time, as we, uh, some of us are able to gather here in this sanctuary and uh, many are connecting online, we are grateful for the lessons that you uh, give to us through your word. God, we ask that uh, as we face difficulties in our lives, as we face challenges and the things that threaten to rob us of our joy or even our lives, we pray that the strength that we draw on would not be our own, but it would be yours, that, the, that, it, would be, that it would be rooted in the hope we have in the finished work of the cross. God, we are your people. We desire to hear your voice this morning, and we ask that the truths of this passage would just be on our hearts this week as we go about our daily lives. We ask these things in your son's name.